Amen. Let me invite your attention again to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Last Sunday, we got as far as reading the scripture and then seemed as if the Lord led us another direction, and I believe the way that service ended, God confirmed his leading for us, and I'm thankful for that. So glad for God's work in our midst by the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Please bow your hearts with me for just a moment of prayer. Father, we pray that you will open our hearts to hear and receive your word. We thank you for the moving of your Holy Spirit in our midst last Sunday and how you stirred and moved our hearts. Lord, we know that you are no less able to work and speak through the preaching of your word. But again, it will happen not because I have something to say, but because you by your Spirit work in our midst. And we invite you, Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and speak to us. Lord Jesus, would you help us to walk in the light of the truth? Do all and be all that you would have us to be through your grace and through your power. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to talk to you this morning about surpassing goodness. Jesus said, Anybody that wants to be a part of the kingdom of heaven must have a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness or that surpasses, that goes beyond the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. We are familiar with these words of Jesus to Nicodemus from John chapter 3, where he said, you must be born again. And most of us understand this as the introduction of a person into the family of faith or into the kingdom of God, that when we are saved, when we are born again, we become a Christian. Now, the typical understanding of the way this works is, is that when we are born again, uh, something happens, poof, or, or there's a, some kind of a lightning bolt from heaven, and we become righteous. You may be familiar with the concept of righteousness, that is living the right way, that, that the idea of Christ followers, people who name the name of Christ, being like Jesus. I don't know if you remember, but a number of years back, uh, the old book, In His Steps, came to the forefront of, of popular Christian culture again, and you saw everywhere the, the little uh, initials WWJD from that book, What Would Jesus Do? And you saw it on t-shirts and on bumper stickers and on people's bracelets and 
And uh, I remember thinking at the time, well, that's kind of cool that that is, you know, kind of coming to the forefront of, uh, of popular Christian culture. That's a good question to ask. What would Jesus do? But, you know, it's better to actually live that out in daily life. It's one thing to put it on your bumper or to wear it on a bracelet or on a shirt. But it's something entirely different to actually live the way Jesus would live. Oftentimes, people fail to understand how this actually works out practically in our lives. As I mentioned a moment ago, uh, some people understand this being born again to be nothing more than a legal transaction in heaven. In other words, as a criminal would go before a court and a judge in our, uh, in our country today, and uh, you know whether or not they actually did the deed that they are accused of, if a jury finds them innocent, they are declared innocent. And that's the way some people see salvation. Jesus' righteousness is as a robe or a coat that I put on over a dirty, sinful heart. And so when God looks at me, he doesn't see my sins, but he sees the righteousness of Christ. Well, I hope it's more than that. We certainly believe uh, that God does credit righteousness to our account. That is righteousness imputed. That is credited to us by faith. However, salvation is more than just a legal transaction that takes place in heaven. Being born again is something, it's called regeneration. It's called that for a reason. The Apostle Paul used the words in 2 Corinthians that we are a new creation in Christ. In other words, there is actually something that takes place in our hearts and in our lives that makes us different from the person that we were before. Now, sometimes the way we talk about this and the way it is communicated leads us to think in terms of the lightning bolt or the poof. I don't know if any of you will relate to this or not, but uh, I, I kind of relate to this having grown up in, under, under holiness teaching and holiness preaching. I kind of relate to this uh, in uh, the context of the teaching of holiness, entire sanctification, that uh, that through both salvation and entire sanctification, that there's kind of a spiritual lightning bolt that zaps you and magically, almost as if by magic, your, your problems are gone and you become a righteous person. Everything that God wants you to be. Well, is that really the way it works? Now, I don't want to be confusing at all. I don't want to communicate the idea that nothing happens when we are born again or when we are entirely sanctified. I firmly believe that something happens both as a legal transaction in heaven and as something genuine that takes place in our hearts, a genuine change. However, that doesn't mean that God is done making us everything that he wants us to be at that point. 
When we look at the Sermon on the Mount and the teachings of Jesus there, we need to understand how Jesus is using the language. What he is talking about is what I would call the nature of reality. In other words, it's just how, it's about how life works. Let me see if I can explain this to you. C.S. Lewis gave us this quote, God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. In other words, it is about the nature of reality. In other words, me saying something or believing something doesn't make it so. For it to be true, for it to be reality, what I say and what I believe must correspond with what actually is so. In other words, I can choose to step off the edge of a cliff, but I cannot choose not to fall. That is just the nature of reality. So let's bring this a little bit closer to home and help us understand what Jesus is saying. Suppose I tell you that according to the law, a blind man can't drive. A blind man can't drive. Now, there would be some, I'm sure, as crazy as the world is that we live in today, who would want to try to say, well, now that's discriminatory. That's discriminating against blind people. You shouldn't be able to say that blind people can't drive. That's being discriminating. That's, and that's mean and unkind to blind people. No, it's not. That's actually very kind and caring to blind people and also very kind and caring to the rest of the world to say that blind people can't drive. It's not about saying that because you're blind, we're not going to let you drive. It's saying because you are blind, you are not able to drive. You don't have the necessary capability and function in order to drive. It's talking about the nature of reality and how reality works. So let's take that and apply that understanding to some things that Jesus has said, where he said, unless you do such and such, you cannot be something else. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, before we dive into that, let's talk for just a few minutes about righteousness, what righteousness means. Righteousness in the Old Testament is not primarily an ethical quality, but the basic meaning of the word is that it is a norm in the affairs of the world to which men and things should conform and by which they can be measured. I know that's kind of wordy, so let me say it again. You put your thinking caps on and open your ears. The Old Testament understanding of righteousness is that it is a norm in the affairs of the world to which men and things should conform and by which they can be measured. So this norm 
this cultural norm or worldly norm in Judaism that righteousness is defined in terms of the law or uh, the Torah, the law of Moses. In other words, that was the norm to which society and men were to conform, and if they did, they were considered righteousness. Among the Greeks, we can study things like Plato's Republic, and we see the Greek word dikaiosune, uh, there, the meaning of uh, righteousness in the Greek culture is developed further. It is considered one of uh, the cardinal virtues along with justice and wisdom and temperance and things of that nature. Aristotle developed it a little bit more, and in Aristotle's teachings, he used the idea of the condition of the soul to live well. The condition of the soul to live well. And then comes Jesus, then comes Jesus saying things like, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he went through all of the region preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He develops that a little bit in Matthew 6, 33, where he talks about the righteousness of the kingdom and says, seek ye First, the kingdom of God and its righteousness. So what is exactly kingdom righteousness? What is kingdom righteousness? Well, we need to understand that it's not about following a list of rules and regulations. I'm sure you are well aware that there are people who take the Sermon on the Mount and the regulations, they, they take it in the form that we have it there, and they take it as regulations that Jesus gave to us. They, they, take, they say, well, everything, you know, the, the Ten Commandments, so that's Old Testament, and what we have to do is we have to look in the New Testament and find out what Jesus repeated there, and that's how we understand what's valid for us today, and, and all of that, and the rest is not valid um, and what ends up happening is we approach the teachings of the New Testament in the same way that the Pharisees approached the Old Testament law, and we become legalists in the same manner that the Pharisees were in Jesus' day. We try to live Christian lives, we try to be righteous according to Jesus' teachings by looking at the checklist of rules and regulations, and if we can tick off each one, we can say, oh, I, I must be a Christian, I must be okay. But people, kingdom righteousness is not about following a list of rules and regulations. It is about following Jesus. Jesus invites us into his kingdom and into this partnership with himself that is called discipleship. Discipleship. So the question that remains for us is this, how does following Jesus help us develop kingdom righteousness? How does, you say discipleship, they called it discipleship. How does that help us become righteous in God's kingdom? And I think the best way to illustrate this is to think about wanting to learn. If you want to learn how to do anything, what do you have to do? Just for a little illustration, if you want to learn how to play the piano, what do you have to do? I mean, not, not, just, not just to 
know how to pick out chopsticks. You know, you can do some things. I can do some things that would make me look like a piano player. I, I could sit down at the piano, and um, for a short time anyway, I could make you think that I know how to play the piano. But I'm not a piano player. To really be a piano player, there are some things that you need to do. First of all, you, you need access to a piano. You need to have one that you can play on. You probably need a teacher. Most people do, anyway. Some people don't, but that is, that is a, a, a divine thing. <laughs> That's a gift. But most people need a teacher. You probably need some money for lessons. You need time with the teacher. And then you need to practice doing what the teacher tells you to do. In other words, you need to arrange the details and the circumstances of your life around that one goal of learning how to play the piano so that you can accomplish what you aspire to do. Same is true of learning a language or, or anything else that you want to learn how to do. You arrange the details of your life so that you can become what you aspire to be. That means that you are going to have to rearrange priorities. And you say, this is interfering with my piano practice. This is interfering with my scheduled time of meeting with my piano teacher. So I'm going to set it aside so that I can focus on my piano teacher and on my piano practice. I don't have enough money to spend on this particular item and have a piano too. So I'm going to have to not buy certain things so that I can pay for the piano. Do you, do you understand what I mean? Do you understand where I'm going? And the reality is, and the nature of reality is, if you don't do those things, you cannot learn how to play the piano. I'm not being mean to you or unkind to you when I say you cannot learn how to play the piano. I'm just telling you something about the nature of reality and how it works. And this is exactly the thing that Jesus was trying to teach his disciples, and I believe that followers of Christ really need to get a grip on today, is if you do not arrange the details of your life so that you can accomplish what you aspire to do and be, you cannot be a part of the kingdom of God. You cannot be a Christ follower. Unless you look at your life and arrange the details of your life in such a way that says, you know what, this part of my life is interfering with me spending time with God's people. So I'm going to put this aside in order to do what the Bible says and not forsake the assembling of ourselves together with other Christian believers. My favorite TV program is distracting me and putting my mind in a different place so that my heart is not prepared to spend time with God in reading His Word and prayer. So I'm going to put that aside so I can focus on that. Whatever it is. And I'm not, if you, 
I'm not picking on you for whatever you may do or don't do, okay? I hope you understand that. If you, if you have television in your home, God bless you. You know I trust how to regulate that and how to control that so that it does not interfere with your walk with the Lord. Amen? But if you have it and you learn that you're not able to regulate it so that it doesn't interfere with your walk with the Lord, you ought to get rid of it. And that's just one example. Anything, it could be anything. For most of us, it's probably not the television anymore. For most of us, it's probably this thing that you either carry in your purse or, or wear on your belt. So many people, and I've, I, I've got to be honest and say I wrestle with it myself. It, you know, when you, you can turn your phone so that it doesn't ring out loud, but it buzzes, it, it vibrates. And are you aware of the phenomenon of a phantom buzz, a phantom vibration? Have you ever, has anybody ever experienced, some of you have, you've experienced that besides me, yes. I think, I've, I don't know what I'll be doing, walking down the road or busy around the house or in my office or whatever and think, oh, was that my phone? Did my phone just ring? No, didn't, just my imagination. And you can't hardly go for five minutes without looking on your phone to make sure you haven't missed a message or missed a call or what have you. Jesus gave us these words in Luke chapter 14 where he develops this idea further. We read from this passage at the beginning of the service. Luke chapter 14, verse 25, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I guess it wasn't this, this scripture that we read. It was a little bit later on, but, but a similar scripture. We read this one last week. This was last week. Oh, Jesus is being mean. He's telling a certain category of people that they cannot be his disciple. No, Jesus is not being mean. He's just talking about the nature of reality. It's just the way reality works. If you want to learn a new language, you've got to... Put aside some things in your schedule so you can focus on that particular thing in order to learn the language. If you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ and become a disciple and develop kingdom righteousness, you cannot do it unless you lay aside what will detract and distract from that and make that your central goal. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate, whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Verse 33, so therefore any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. What is Jesus talking about? 
Is he saying literally we must hate our mother and father and sister and brother? We hate the people? No, that's not what he's saying. And in fact, the other scriptures tell us that we are supposed to love each other as we love ourselves. What Jesus is talking about in these kinds of passages is something to do with the nature of reality, that unless we make him central to our lives, and then we arrange and organize all the other details of our lives around Jesus. I used to think about this like a list of priorities, and Jesus is at the top, and then one, two, three, four, five, six, so on and so forth. But I know I don't think about it in that way anymore. I don't think it's appropriate to think about it in that way. I think it's better to think about it in terms of like you would a a, a wheel with a hub and spokes that go out. And Jesus Christ and our relationship with him is the hub of that wheel. It is the central defining characteristic of our life, of everything that we are and everything that we do. And flowing out from Christ, the hub are the spokes that lead to the rest of our lives. And Jesus Christ and our relationship with him informs the way we relate to every other aspect of our life. And this, I believe, is what... Jesus is talking about. It is about the nature of reality. And this is how we as Christ followers, people alive in the kingdom of God, develop the righteousness that is better than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, the surpassing goodness. It is a righteousness that is beyond outward compliance. It is a righteousness that cannot come out if it's not on the inside first. How many of you can walk and chew gum at the same time? Or, or you, can do, you've got, you can do two or three things at the same time. Now, I don't know, this is, this is, uh, this is uh, controversial these days, uh, but it's the best example I can think of. We often see people driving down the road, talking on their phone, drinking a pop or whatever, a a drink of some kind, eating a cheeseburger or french fry. And Lord help us, every once in a while you'll see a lady putting on her makeup while she's, she's trying to put on her makeup while she's driving down the road. I think that scares me more than anything else, but... How, how do you get to be able to do that? It is, a, it is a process where you make one thing the focal point of your life. That thing is driving in this case, in this example. And you drive so much. You, you, many of us probably had a teacher and you practiced and then what you practiced, you started doing, you started putting into daily uh, use, and the more you did it, the easier it got to be, until now you do things while you're driving without even thinking about it. They're behaviors, they're actions that are built into your body that are instinctual, and your body does it without you even having to really pay attention. It just comes automatically. That's how people drive, talk on the phone, do more than one thing at one time. Now, I'm not saying that's a real good idea, but 
I'm just saying that's how it happens. This is how kingdom righteousness develops within us. We make that one thing the focal point of our lives. We practice it. We practice doing what Jesus tells us to do, being the kind of person he teaches us to be. And we do it daily, and we do it consistently until it becomes a part of who we are so that things like blessing those who curse us, we don't have to work hard to do it because we've practiced it to the point that it's second nature and what's on the inside naturally flows out. Jesus gave us these words in Matthew chapter 12, 35. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. Kingdom righteousness is not just behavior modification. It's more than that. But kingdom righteousness is having God change us from the inside out so that the automatic flow from the inside reflects kingdom values. And the new birth, friends, is the beginning of this. What follows the new birth is discipleship. Perhaps a better word that we might understand more these days is that of apprenticeship. Being an apprentice to Jesus. I'm closing with this. The system of apprenticeship first developed in the later Middle Ages and came to be supervised by craft guilds and town governments. A master craftsman was entitled to employ young people as an inexpensive form of labor in exchange for providing them with food, lodging, and formal training in the craft. In other words, the young person that was to be an apprentice would actually go often and live with the person that they were apprenticed to, and they would eat together, and they would live together, and and when there was work to be done, they would work together. And that was how they learned their craft. In the case of this illustration, uh, a blacksmith. Apprenticeships were long. They lasted anywhere from two to seven years, depending on the particular trade after which the apprentice became a journeyman. That's still a term that we use today, a journeyman. And at that point, the journeyman would be paid by the day for his work. And then after a period of extensive experience, the journeyman could submit a piece of his best work to the appropriate guild for assessment and approval. And if the masterpiece was accepted, then he could be declared a master craftsman and set up his own workshop and train other apprentices. It involved concentration on the one thing, the one thing that was more important than everything else. That was becoming, in this case, a blacksmith. Concentration on that one thing. And then concentrated effort and concentrated time on that one thing until they developed those skills. Friends, this is what following Jesus looks like. It's not about a moment in time where we pray and we get up and say, oh, now I'm a Christian and I I don't have any cares or concerns or, or worries. No, it's about choosing and committing yourself to receive the new birth and then become a follower 
of Jesus Christ. That is to arrange all the details of my life around the one thing, to be like Jesus. Amen. That is the righteousness which exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Let's stand together, please. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will put within us a vision of the kind of person that you want us to be, what it means for us to follow Christ. Then, Lord, give each one of us the intention and then the means to follow through First to find out what we need to do and then to do whatever we need to do to be your disciples, to be like Christ. And Lord, we will thank you for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Now may God bless you and keep you and make his countenance to shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.